It's this tendency here among self-described uh, Sweden fans. Uh, they always give you, try to give you the impression that you can have Scandi-level uh, Swedish-style um, public service provision and it would cost you almost nothing. Uh, the, the top 1% will pay for it all. Yes. You just need to tax a handful of billionaires and all will be well. That is not at all what happens in Sweden. Welcome to the IA's YouTube channel. Today we will be talking about The Mirage of Swedish Socialism, a book by Cato Institute Senior Fellow Johan Norberg for the Realities of Socialism Project, a partnership which the IA is a part of along with the Fraser Institute in Canada, the Institute of Public Affairs in Australia and the Foundation for Economic Education in the United States. And this literature talks a little bit about how Sweden is often talked about in leftist circles as a, a type of, of goal to aim for for countries like the UK and the US uh, as a kind of socialist utopia that actually works. Um, but while Sweden undoubtedly does have higher taxes and higher government spending than we at the IEA would probably like, that doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. So joining me to discuss this today is my colleague Christian Niemitz, the expert on all brands of socialism, all successful and mostly failed experiments in socialism. Christian, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Um, so to start off with, Sweden, uh, as it began to industrialise and until the end of the Second World War, was actually a fairly solidly liberal free market place. And this book tells a, a, a longer story going back into the 19th century and even before that of the economic history. So can you tell us a little bit about about that sort of pre-Second World War history of, of Sweden's economy. Yes, that is something that I didn't know much about either, that actually there is such a thing as, uh, there is a Swedish liberal tradition, uh, a classical liberal tradition uh, from the 19th or even earlier uh, century uh, Sweden, uh, that I didn't know much about either. I always assumed that Swedish liberalism was just our colleagues at Timbro. Um, <laughs> but no, they have a, a tradition of their own going back a long way, um, including an Adam Smith-like figure. And um, what he talks about in the book is how Sweden was, until the middle of the 19th century, more of a feudalist economy, so not much of a market economy, more of a, a guild system of the type that we would maybe associate with the Middle Ages. Uh, they had that until well into the 19th century, and that must be the main reason why they did not industrialize. So there, there is a passage uh, in Adam Smith's book, In the Wealth of Nations, where he talks about Sweden and uh, calls it a poor country, uh, which, if you read this nowadays, sounds a bit odd. But of course, <laughs> yeah. uh, totally true at the time, and for a considerably longer period afterwards. It was only when they started to implement uh, liberal reforms in the mid-19th century um, so getting rid of the guild system, allowing people to set up uh, private companies and um, freeing up trade and allowing the price mechanism to work. All the, what we would just consider the basics, the classics. Uh, this, this is something that doesn't come out of nowhere. It has to be done. And uh, you need active reformers and liberal thinkers who advocate for that kind of stuff. Uh, Sweden had that. They implemented that very successfully. Um, Slowly, uh, this implementation period, he says, lasted from the 1840s to 1870s or so, so over the course of a, a generation. It was not a revolution, but once it was in place, once you could describe Sweden as a, a market-based economy, uh, they took off very quickly. So even though they started late with the industrialization process, 
uh, they caught up with the rest of Western Europe, with the industrialized parts of Western Europe very quickly and went on to become one of the richest economies in the world. So when we talk about Sweden, we shouldn't reduce it to this uh, big state model that we think about today, uh, but we should also look at the wider history. And uh, yeah, this early industrial Swedish history is really a classical liberal free market success story that liberals should uh, talk about more. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there were some staggering stats in there. I think by 1950, it was the fourth largest economy in Europe. After So, I mean, the Second World War would have put a hit on most other countries. Sweden was neutral, but that's still a pretty incredible economic performance. Its tax take as a percentage of GDP was lower than the United States after the US embarked on the New Deal. I think by 1970, in the 100 years from 1870 to 1970, the country had experienced, of, of all countries, the third highest total growth in that period of time, which is quite staggering considering mm. the amount of global growth there was during that period. What happens then? This is when things start to go off the rails a bit, isn't it? When we hit the 1960s. Yes, that's uh, when a period of uh, exuberance starts. So you had uh, the Social Democratic Party becoming the largest, uh, the dominant party uh, already in the 1920s. And from at least the early 30s onwards, they were almost continuously in government. So you had uh, a bit like Japan, where even though they have elections, it's always the same party yeah. in government. Sweden was like that for a long time, for many decades. Uh, you would always have the Social Democratic Party. Um, if not governing alone, then at least as the, the larger partner in a coalition. And for a while, though, that was fine. Uh, Norberg explains in the book that the Social Democrats at the time... Uh, from the, at least uh, after the 1920s, uh, gave up on Marxism and made their peace with the market economy, became a market-friendly, um, centre-left, left-liberal party. And therefore, even though they didn't, they probably wouldn't have created this uh, liberal transformation uh, on their own, uh, that 19th century liberal transformation, they wouldn't have done that themselves, but they inherited it and accepted it for quite a while. And um, for that reason, Sweden remained a relatively liberal market economy. Uh, what happened then was that you had, first of all, um, well, what Sweden is most associated with today, government spending skyrocketing. Yes. Uh, so that's not unique uh, to Sweden. That was generally true that uh, in the 1960s, most welfare states expanded hugely. Uh, what made Sweden different was that most uh, of the rest of the Western world pretty much stopped that or even went into reverse in the 70s, once you had the oil crisis and all that, uh, and uh, they realized we can't keep doing this forever, Sweden just pushed full steam ahead. So you had, by the late 70s, uh, more than half of GDP uh, being go uh, government spending, and then it edged close to 60%, even exceeded that, I think, for a while. So you had the biggest public sector probably anywhere in the world, uh, the largest um, the highest levels of public spending that were ever recorded anywhere outside of, uh, of wartime economies. Uh, but even that wasn't yet the main problem, although that also did lead to capital flight and um, entrepreneurs. There's lots of famous anecdotes of famous entrepreneurs uh, relocating. And even this story, I'm, I'm sure you've read this, that uh, because of the, the tax laws, that, that explains uh, these uh, costumes that ABBA uh, were wearing on stage that you could somehow 
work clothing was tax deductible, but it had to be clear that you were not using it for a personal purpose. So it had to be so outrageously colorful that uh, the taxman would believe you that you wouldn't walk around like that on, on a normal day, that this was purely stage clothing. Yeah. yeah. There was that, but that wasn't the main it's problem. Perfect also... examination of the knowledge problem and unintended consequences, isn't it? How, well, how, does, how does ABBA's outrageous costumes link to Sweden's tax code? You can't predict that. You can't plan that. No. It's a bit like uh, the, the effects of the window tax that we still, uh, yeah, uh, even now sitting in this uh, overly dark building because of the window tax uh, having far too few windows. Um, yeah, I guess the, the ABBA clothing example would be a more benign example, at least. Yeah. Um, there is no long-term negative legacy. But nonetheless, ideally, uh, the way you dress on stage or the way you build houses or whatever it is uh, shouldn't be determined by the tax code, ideally. Yes. It should just be whatever is optimal for you. So enough distortions there, but that wasn't even the main problem for them. It was that the government also started tampering with the, the working of the price system, of the wage system, uh, the signals that make a market economy what it is. And um, that's when the economy started to go off the rails. Uh, and But when Norberg calls it a socialist period, uh, the, six, uh, the, the 70s and 80s, what he means by that is not just the policies that were actually implemented. Uh, he says Sweden was never that keen on, it was never the kind of economy where a large share was uh, of, of companies were nationalized. So that was never their main problem. It was never um, a mixed economy in the sense that you had uh, private and public ownership side by side. It was always predominantly private. But it, what he means by that is that there was a general socialist zeitgeist. You had the social democrats in power and they had got pretty much everything they wanted. So, so the social democratic policy agenda, um, there wasn't really a way you could take it much further. They uh, they had achieved their aims. And... Um, I, I, I suppose a, a point is that you can have private property rights in name only, can't you? And, and lots of countries do restrict them in ways you and I might not like in... in but, you know, a tax, for example, might be considered a violation of private property rights, but it's not as egregious as something like, you know, uh, he exceedingly heavy business regulation, um, uh, something like forcing um, employers uh, and businesses to set prices based on agreements with trade unions and government um, price boards. That type of stuff is, you know, you can still own the, the actual property of a business on a piece of paper. But if the government has got to the stage where almost every single part of what you can do with that property is heavily restricted, directed by state boards, and a lot of the proceeds end up going to the state or other people, you can sort of say it's not quite the full hog, but yeah. it's a significant erosion of private property rights, isn't it? Yeah, then you get something like a wartime economy with uh, property rights existing on paper only. Yeah. Uh, they want some of the way there. But uh, nonetheless, the reason why uh, Norbeck calls it the socialist period is uh, also because of the climate of opinion at the time, that there were plans to take it even further. Uh, that were seriously considered and that uh, could have happened. And uh, in particular, there was uh, the so-called Meitner plan, uh, a plan to divert share ownership to um, collective funds owned by trade unions, run by trade union officials, uh, that almost happened, well, a, a version of it uh, did happen in the 80s then, but heavily watered down. The original plan was that you would force companies to emit shares, uh, new shares every year, and just hand them over to these uh, trade union funds. 
And that share would increase gradually uh, every year, practically, uh, until at some point, uh, depending on the, 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 rate you, the rates you choose, at some point these trade union funds would run basically the entire economy. So you would have a soft creeping nationalization or collectivization. That move towards syndicalism, isn't it, in some ways? Yeah. yeah. It's a, a strange proposal. But it, are these types of plans to go even further still alive when you hit the late 70s and most of the West is beginning to recover from the oil crisis but Sweden is still stagnant. Um, you've got, as you say, the flight of, of capital and, and entrepreneurs um, and you've, you, you've also got just this, this creeping sense that nothing can, can move while the rest of Europe is moving ahead of you. Are people still seriously considering that we haven't done socialism enough at that stage, mm -hmm. is there denial even then? Yes, there was. And that's why uh, these employee funds became a reality, actually, in the 80s, just not in the way uh, it was originally conceived in the Meitner plan, because there, there was this escalation mechanism. That the idea was that eventually they would control everything. Uh, the way it was actually done was that there was they were more like pension funds. So you had uh, these funds buying shares in some companies, um, and in the 90s it was... Uh, abolished again, dissolved. Uh, but for a while uh, that was in place and that was still an echo of this uh, more optimistic socialist period. Uh, but it was, it still did happen even in, in this watered down version, which in itself shows it's not that they had by that stage abandoned these ideas that watered them down maybe, but it was not a policy U-turn uh, yet. So there, there was still an, an idea that uh, some collectivization is a good thing and we just haven't gone far enough. So that, that was still definitely there in the 80s. But at some point, the luck does run out. Yes. Um, and almost the entire Swedish political establishment gets to the stage in the early 90s where they say, we have to seriously change something here. This can't really go on. Talk a little bit about what happens there. Yeah, so they had a deep uh, recession in the early 90s. That was really the, the culmination of... Uh, of um, what Norberg calls the socialist period, uh, 70s and 80s, and um, where, where they had several years of uh, first steep decline and then stagnation and didn't climb out of that hole again. And um, that was when that 70s, 80s model was uh, abandoned, when they got rid of these um, quasi-price controls and uh, also started to control public spending, bring that back down again. Um, it's still very high today. Uh, it's close to 50% of GDP, uh, which is uh, obviously a lot more than, than you or I would want. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, given where they were starting from, um, that's actually quite a, a dramatic reduction in the size of the state. They had at the peak, it was more than 60%, I think. And uh, they got that down to just under uh, 50. And they implemented uh, pretty strict fiscal rules that that uh, that spending had to be, that you had to have a balanced budget over the course of uh, a number of years. And um, if you wanted to raise spending, you had to raise taxes first. And that just imposed some fiscal discipline. Uh, it did lead to public debt falling as a proportion of GDP, so they got that right. And um, yeah, it was just a, a general period of, of privatization uh, where you could say almost a bit of an echo of 
uh, what we would associate with the 80s, with Thatcherism, uh, a Nordic version of that. It's just that it never, uh, at the international stage, Sweden never acquired a reputation for being a free market reformer in the way Britain did under Thatcher, uh, America under Reagan, where I think the big difference is simply the rhetoric that Thatcher and Reagan uh, had a quite bombastic uh, free market rhetoric. Uh, you could even say the, the rhetoric was much bigger than the actual policies. And, and that's the reason why, um, at least in our small circles, uh, you still get people today who come up with Thatcher quotes, Reagan quotes in defense of free enterprise and will say, wow, why couldn't, why can't a politician today say things like that? Uh, there isn't a Swedish Thatcher, so that there's no particular person that you can associate with uh, that turnaround of, of the 90s. And um, yeah, that's just the difference in, in the political culture. And the, the Swedes are famous for that consensus culture. Yeah. Um, it's even the most, uh, that, that word, uh, la gomme, just right. Um, and, and the centre-right party, I think, is literally called the moderate party. <laughs> imagine making that part of your political identity, that, that you're yeah. moderate. So you couldn't imagine a, a bombastic uh, free market rhetoric. But uh, at least in terms of the macro-level indicators, uh, economic freedom index, uh, doing business indicators, it was, if anything, more uh, dramatic than Thatcherism. Absolutely. And it is, it's a, that is a, a weird difference between the Anglosphere and Europe, isn't it? I mean, even in France, where you see sound free market reforms, of free marketish reforms on things like housing and energy, you don't get bombastic politicians coming out and being pro-free market. The, the, the German economic miracle had a lot of strong market foundations, but Conrad Adenauer is not, you know, on the on the level of Thatcher or Reagan for a lot of people in our movement. It, it It's a shame, I guess, yeah, that happens, they're not sounder. It happens more quietly. They, they might do it, uh, but wouldn't talk about it. That's why you also get... Um, at the times of the mine closures um, uh, and the miners' strike in Britain, uh, there were also closures of coal mines in West Germany. It's, not, it's just that I couldn't name a particular politician who was involved uh, in that. It's not that there, was, there would have been somebody with strident rhetoric uh, attacking the coal mining unions. Um, it's just something that happens behind the scenes and more quietly and in a more subtle way. But that also means it doesn't create a legacy. Um, so it means you can get away with a lot more stuff yeah. uh, if the climate of opinion is not on your side. But for the next generation, uh, you won't have anyone saying, well, they did this back then and, and uh, look at the results. We need something like that today. Well, it pains me to say it, but maybe we should be more European in that sense. In that regard, yeah. <laughs> um, and so when, you know, back to Sweden, when we've got uh, some, some free market reforms ramping up, we have the Sweden of today, which has been the Sweden for the last sort of 20, 30 years, which does exist with a bit of a paradox. As you say, you mentioned the economic freedom of the world index. It's higher than the United States, which will surprise most people uh, in that ranking. Sweden's one of the freest economies in the world. Um, taxes on personal incomes and also consumption are pretty high, but taxes on wealth and business are not particularly high. State spending is very high, but there's also a lot of choice in the public sector, mm -hmm. even if you are relying on government funding. There is a bit of a paradox of Sweden there. So, you know, the, I guess the first part of that question is, uh, is, are there lessons to be learned from the way that Sweden regulates its economy? Um, and is that a good thing? Uh, and two, on the state side of it, have they actually got the right idea? A free market economy that powers high government spending? 
Well, it's not the worst of all worlds. Um, I'd say some people on our side have got a bit too obsessed with the idea of tax cuts. Um, I'm obviously in favor of tax cuts, other things equal. I'd rather have lower taxes than higher taxes. But um, the main problem holding Britain back today isn't the tax burden, it's the nimbyism, it's the fact that nothing gets built, that we don't get, uh, whether it's housing, infrastructure, energy, anything, um, even water reservoirs, uh, it's just that nothing gets built, that is what's really holding back the economy. Once we get that going, then we can talk about uh, tax cuts, but that should really be, at the moment, that would not be my top priority issue. Um, and uh, in, in that regard, having an economy that is less restrictive on those things, but that has higher taxes, might not be worse uh, in total. Um, that's why I think, especially for a lot of people, if you live in London, you probably pay more in rent than you pay in taxes. So yep. that would uh, explain <laughs> a lot. So some of the priorities. Um, nonetheless, I don't think that um, that it is a good model, because uh, as this book also shows, and I've, I've seen this before in, uh, in, in more detailed economic indicators, that uh, a lot of the, the fiscal redistribution in Sweden is really horizontal redistribution, meaning it's not, um, well, normally we, we talk about vertical redistribution, meaning from the rich to the poor, or um, if it's done badly, the, in the opposite direction. Uh, horizontal redistribution means you redistribute between people who are fundamentally quite similar in their economic positions. Mm. Um, it's just that uh, you make some criteria and say, are they parents or not? Um, you make that the, uh, the, the criterion, the variable for redistribution, and then you can redistribute between people who are really in the same income quintile. And you have a lot of, um, well, fairly unsystematic redistribution, uh, where in effect you pay for your own benefits. The government just takes money out of, uh, out of your right-hand pocket and puts it into your left-hand pocket. And you're then supposed to feel grateful uh, to the politicians uh, saying, oh, thanks for all those benefits. Uh, but actually, when the bill arrives, uh, you are the one paying for it. Uh, so they have a lot of that. And I can't see why that is in any way uh, superior to just a more targeted uh, welfare state, which really just provides a safety net. And that safety net doesn't have to be minimalistic. I'm not talking about workhouses here, but it can still be. If your aim is really just to, uh, to have a basic level of redistribution from the rich to the poor, you can do that with a couple of percentage points of GDP. Mm. You don't need a welfare state of anything like Swedish uh, or, or French or Belgian proportions for that. You can do that all for a fraction of that. And I just can't see why the Scandi-style welfare state, why that is supposed to be better than the more targeted one. Absolutely. Um, but in the delivery of the welfare state, to be fair to them, there is quite a lot of choice that's given to people. Uh, so in, in social care, in uh, school, they've got a mostly privatised provision of schools, I believe, in Sweden. Um, and uh, also uh, early years childcare. You can choose a state-provided um, uh, service. You can choose private, non-profit providers, the government will give you a, a voucher and it's quite, you know, you have quite a lot of choice at your disposal even though the government is ultimately paying for it. Yeah. So when I see, you know, there were a few uh, Guardian articles when Jeremy Corbyn was Labour leader trying to say that, oh, he's Scandi, not Castro. And that, it, it strikes me that, you know, the, the choice they give people for social services in Sweden already puts them in a more market-oriented direction than we are now. Whenever we have a conversation about welfare provision, whether it's the NHS 
whether it's you know literally pensions, cash transfers, um, uh, schooling, childcare, there's never a conversation about choice. It's just the government will handle it for you. Sweden's in that. Are, are we not already more socialistic than Sweden? In our even though our provision is more austere, it's actually pretty. You know, the means of of provision are seized by the state a lot more than I think they are in Sweden, right? Well, yeah. What's What's interesting is that the people who uh, here would talk about Sweden as a model, uh, they would be the most fiercely opposed to that kind of voucher-like uh, choice within the welfare state. Uh, so yeah, that, that was the way they, they did it. They had uh, not actual vouchers, but uh, just a payment system where um, as a user of welfare services, you get to choose, uh, say between schools, healthcare providers, social care providers, whatever, and then the money would follow the user. So it is uh, like an implicit voucher. And uh, that choice would extend also to, uh, to private providers. So the figure that Norberg comes up with in the book, uh, he says uh, close to a fifth of the total welfare budget is spent privately in that way. It's still tax money, it's, it's publicly yeah. funded, but it goes to a private provider um, with differences uh, between the sectors. Um, but that's uh, overall, that is, their, uh, that is the trend. Um, the, that is the situation where, where you have uh, that level of choice. And um, this would be something where, particularly in healthcare, uh, this is always extremely controversial here. So the NHS can't buy a pencil from a private company without um, creating a, a hysteria campaign about how this leads, how this is a, a Trojan horse that will lead to the, the total privatization mm -hmm. of the NHS. Uh, so it's not that they have a higher uh, level of um, publicly funded private healthcare in Sweden. I think overall it's, it's fairly similar uh, to here or, or maybe a bit higher. Uh, it's just that there it seems to be more accepted, whereas here uh, every tiny step in that direction is always hugely controversial. Uh, even the, uh, the school choice, uh, the, the free schools that we had here uh, under the coalition government, mm. they were modelled on that Swedish example. Um, but they were hugely controversial here. And uh, it, it really took um, quite a bit of determination when, uh, well, Michael Gove at the time, a very different incarnation uh, from what he's up to nowadays, uh, where he styled himself as this uh, bold reformer taking yeah. on the blob, as he called it, the educational establishment, yeah. uh, trying to push that through. And um, yeah, it's, uh, this is a Swedish style reform. So Gove can... Uh, uh, quite legitimately say, uh, I'm, I'm a Nordic-type social democrat. Yes. Uh, most Nordic, uh, self-described Nordic-type uh, social democrats probably hate him, but, uh, yeah. but, but he can legitimately say that. That's because uh, he referred to and, and learned from an actual policy rather than just using uh, Sweden as just blank canvas that you project your policy preferences into. Exactly, and that is the point when you have people on the... the the far left, the communist left, the Marxist left in the UK and the US, if they start talking about Sweden, it's just, it's simply not true. That, that, is, not, that is not a model of what you are advocating for. It is a, a squarely market-based economy that does happen to have very high levels of personal taxes and the like. And that, that's one, one more thing I'd quite like to mention, is that Swedes generally seem to be pretty happy um, the country works all right, it's fairly peaceful for the most part and high social trust, but individuals are on the hook for a lot of taxes. Mm. Um, 
uh, the I think the top rate of personal income tax kicks in at the equivalent I think of just over fifty thousand dollars a year. Uh, got very high, I think twenty five percent VAT, which is going to be very punishing for people's wallets. Now those things are very good for having an expanded tax base to raise revenue from, but it's not ideal for families, is it? Well, like they do is, pay a price. Yeah, I mean, there is this tendency here among self-described uh, Sweden fans. Uh, they always give you, try to give you the impression that you can have Scandi-level uh, Swedish-style um, public service provision, and it would cost you almost nothing. Uh, the the top one percent will pay for it all. Yes. You just need to tax a handful of billionaires, and all will be well. That is not at all what happens in Sweden. Uh, it's a fairly broad-based tax system that taxes everyone at high rates. And uh, it does not single out a few super rich people. So, of course, if you are rich in Sweden, uh, you do pay a lot of taxes, but uh, not proportionately more so than somebody on average incomes. It's a system that places high taxes on, on everyone, uh, partly through consumption taxes, partly through just generally high income tax rates across the board. And uh, if, you want that kind, if somebody wants that kind of model, they should honestly say, we can have that. Uh, it's not the end of the world. It would not automatically lead to massive capital flight or everyone stopping working, but it will be expensive. And don't give people the impression that uh, it's th this will all be paid for by 12 billionaires. Uh, yeah, it will absolutely. be paid for by everybody. There just aren't enough billionaires in the country or for that matter in the world. Absolutely. And the, while, while we look at Sweden now, and you know, as we've explained, it's not a socialist utopia, it's not a free market utopia either, it's quite far from both of those things. But in that period in the 70s and 80s, it was much closer to trying to put into, into place some of these quite socialistic policies, I'm particularly thinking about things like price controls, which are you know, a good signifier that you've gone well over the edge and moved away from any pretense of a market economy. Um, that, what, the results of that were pretty catastrophic for Sweden. But it, 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 never, it never turned into anything like we see in somewhere like you know, the USSR or Venezuela or you know, North Korea. It was never quite that bad. But I think even though Sweden isn't an example of, 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 of socialist utopia, it, it is a, a better warning sign for us than somewhere like Venezuela. Because we do have the, uh, you know, the, the pre-existing size of the economy. Uh, we've got very strong institutions comparatively in the UK. It probably won't end up like Venezuela. It probably never could. But it, that, that type of creeping state interference, that very, well, it's, it's a reactionary tendency for the government to just sort of step in and solve every perceived social ill with burdensome regulation and the economic stagnation that comes from that. That type of outcome worries me more in the UK do, do, you think there's, do you think there's anything to that? Um, well, the reason why it didn't go full Venezuela, um, including results-wise, is that it was still, even in the, in the 70s and 80s, it was all still very rules-based. Um, so you would never have a situation like what did happen in Venezuela, that you had Chavez uh, just yeah. picking a fight with some private entrepreneur and then saying, you, I don't like you, you're expropriated. Yeah, yeah. That never happened, even under the Meitner plan, even if it had been, if it had been fully implemented. 
in the original form, it would not have been a literal expropriation of anyone. It, it would just have meant uh, you have this gradual transfer of share ownership and um, the size of this union fund grows and grows and the proportion owned by private individuals shrinks and shrinks. But it's, it's still very much within the rule of law. Uh, nonetheless, I would say... I but, could, but we, I, we would have the same thing. Now. I mean, it, that is the strength of the institutions, isn't it? It's, that it's, it's slow, it's managed, it's within the rules, it's somewhat predictable... And yet the, the outcome is still pretty nightmarish from an economic side. And you, but you do have the, the strengths of the institutions that stop it going well off the, off the rails in the way you've just described with Venezuela. Well, I mean, who knows? I could imagine that uh, an actual majority Corbyn government would have turned Venezuelan quite quickly ra rather than Swedish because you, you might have had this effect of, say, a, a huge capital flight and then uh, the keenest supporters uh, then and, and some of his uh, more hardline advisors um, saying, oh, look, this is the bourgeoisie uh, trying to undermine uh, our fantastic, our, the people's paradise that we're trying to create. Yes. And, um, and, well, and, and simply the fact that uh, Team Corbyn himself and some of the people around him were idolizing Venezuela, the literal Venezuela, for many years. Yeah. So that's why there I wouldn't be so optimistic that, uh, that the institution would always um, offer a protective wall. Uh, you could have with the right, well, meaning wrong people in charge, um, with actual Chavez and, and Castro admirers, uh, you could quite quickly move to Castro-Chavez uh, type outcomes. But what, what I would say is even if it had been the Swedish road, uh, let's say if, if Sweden had gone through with the original Meitner plan, um, well, okay, it, it would not have been Venezuela-type chaos because it, it would have been within predictable rules. But nonetheless, when we criticize um, socialist economics, our criticism isn't about the mechanism for collectivization. Uh, so you can have a perfectly rules-based and um, ha harmless-looking process for collectivizing the economy. That doesn't change the fact that in the end, when you have a collectively run economy, that doesn't work. Then you run into the, the socialist calculation problems, uh, the Hayek knowledge problems and all that. Indeed. And uh, that doesn't really depend on whether you do that through violence, whether you have uh, the Stalinist uh, mechanism that you send in the secret police and, and uh, arrest everyone who, uh, who stands in the way, or whether you do it in the, in the nice Swedish way and, and say, oh, well, just give us another percent of your share ownership and another yeah, yeah, percent and yeah. another percent. Um, in the end, uh, it doesn't really matter. And in the end, uh, the old socialist economies fail because of the Hayekian, Misesian problems, uh, because, of the, uh, because of the impossibility of centrally planning an economy. And um, would it have gone full Venezuela? Maybe not, but you could have imagined them ending up being somewhere like East Germany, say. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that happy note, that's <laughs> all we've got time for. Thank you all very much for watching. If you enjoyed that video, please give it a like. And if you want to see more like this, please do subscribe to the IA London YouTube channel. Thank you very much.